Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. 1 John is traditionally believed to have been authored by John the Disciple and Apostle. The language and content are very similar to the Gospel of John as well as to 2nd and 3rd John. However, scholars are divided about this, like so much else, and some propose that there was a Johannine, a, a Johannine community that authored all of those. And so this would have been those who followed Jesus after the way of John, the disciple and apostle, created a community of faith, and out of that tradition came a gospel and these three short books, as well as the Revelation that gets written. The date is probably A.D. 85 to 95. It begins and ends without any of the formal features of a letter. So more than likely, this is written as a sermon, either a sermon that was delivered or a sermon that is intended to be sent in in writing or written down after the sermon was delivered. The word command here is going to be used 14 times in this short little book, and it's almost always referencing Jesus' command to love. So, and it's the Greek word entole, um, which is a Greek word for um, command. Ten times we will also use the Greek verb geneo, which means to give birth to. Um, you can take a look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, and the Gospel of John, chapter 3, for more about birth or a new birth being born. This book was significant. Um, it was a significant text for John Wesley. The Doctrine of Christian Perfection that John Wesley authored comes out of this book, that those born of God do not sin, that it doesn't mean that we never commit a sin, but it means that while believers, as long as we continue in complete fellowship with God, we will not willfully sin. And that is accomplished by staying in communication with God, staying in connection to God, and letting God's love flow through us. So if we are perfected in love, if we love perfectly like God loves, then we will not want to sin, and we will minimize our sinning to the greatest extent possible. And that state of communion with God and behavior in our lives is possible in this world. According to John Wesley, who he believes hears John the Apostle saying that here. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we see that Jesus was from the beginning. Jesus is eternal. We hear echoes of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. But Jesus is also a historic reality. He was a real person who came to earth at a, at a real point in human history. Uh, and there are these, including John, who are offering a first-hand account 
of what Jesus said and did while he was here. Fellowship in this context means having all things in common. In verse 4, we cannot be completely happy until you fully understand the gospel. So he's saying our, our joy can only be complete when we know that you understand what we're saying. Here in these verses, it may be you or our. Um, there's some manuscript differences there. So he may be saying your joy, you cannot be as completely happy as you could be until you understand this. Or he may be saying our joy cannot be complete until you fully understand. By the way, verses one through three are one single, very long sentence in the Greek. In verses five through 10, he says that God is light. Um, we have the a message here, which is angelia, um, or angelia. Um, it is not evangelion, which is the word we more commonly think of, um, an angel is a messenger who brings a message, and that message is the angelia. It's more of an announcement or a pronouncement. Evangelion is more persuasive. This is more just, it's a statement. It's just a fact. I don't have to argue or debate with you about it. It just is. Um, that word is used only twice in the Bible, and both of them are in First John. 1 John 1, 5 and 1 John 3, 11. Um, there's another form of a related word, which means to proclaim or preach. Um, light represents the glory and the truth of God. Doing the truth is the opposite of doing evil. Our actions reveal our beliefs and the truth about us. So it's interesting to me that he doesn't, the opposites are not truth and lies or good and evil, he contrasts truth and evil. So truth is good and false is evil. We have to walk, verse 7, and cleanse, verse 8. Um, and both of these are in a, in a verb tense in Greek that mean they are present and ongoing. So we keep walking, we keep cleansing. We cannot deny our sin. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Instead, we confess it and we receive forgiveness for it. There are moral as well as belief conditions to our relationship with God in Christ, as well as to our fellowship with other believers. Moving into chapter 2, Verses 1 through 6, we have Christ, who is our advocate. Both Christ and the Holy Spirit are going to be called an advocate for us. So we have two that advocate for us. In this place, it is Christ. He uses the word here, little children, and it's the Greek word technion. It's an affectionate term that teachers often used for their disciples. My little children my little ones. Um, we have other uses of Jesus as our advocate in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 34. 
Um, And it says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. This is the foundation of atonement theology. Atonement theology is kind of passing out of favor in a lot of Christianity, but it is certainly one of those doctrines that is rooted in Scripture, even though we, if we don't like it and we don't believe it's the best representation, um, it, it certainly is not unfounded. It is scriptural. It's kind of like we can debate the difference between free will and predestination, but both of those find their basis in trying to be faithful to Scripture. So atonement theology certainly represents that of the first generation church and is founded well in Scripture. Belonging to Jesus means obeying Him. We also heard this in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15. In verse 5, we have the word perfection. Perfection means to be made complete entirely, um, to be mature, to become fully matured. We copy Jesus as exactly as we can. Even the word Christian means little Christ. It was first used of us back in Antioch and was meant to be a mocking statement. They're trying to be little Christ. They're trying to be just like Jesus Christ. Um, Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we're supposed to do is copy Jesus just as exactly as we can to be little Christ. Verses 7 through 11, we have a new commandment. Jesus gave them a new commandment in Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 35. Um, that's what they've been preaching this whole time. So this is not the first time you've heard it. You got a new commandment, but it's not the first time you've heard this new commandment. There are two overlapping eras that are happening right now. The darkness is passing away and the light is already shining, but it's not all light yet. Hate is not an option for us. We're going to pick this theme up later in this book, in this um, little letter. Um, It becomes very clear here that hatred is not an option for Christians. Prejudice and unforgiveness are excluded. We can't do that. We're not allowed. Verses 12 through 14, there are three groups that are addressed. Children are how he refers to all believers. Then he refers to two groups of his children, to fathers, who are the older ones among them, and to to the young, the younger believers. Now, this probably refers more to their spiritual maturity state and not to their chronological or physical age. So the fathers would be those who are experienced, that have some maturity in the faith, whereas the the young ones are newer, newer believers who don't have as much knowledge or experience walking with Christ. In verse 13, because you have come to know the one who is Jesus and the evil one is Satan. And that's the same in verse 14. Moving into verse 15 through 17, he contrasts the love of God with love of the world. Loving the world is an attitude that ruins our fellowship with other believers, and it can lead to our spiritual destruction. We have to decide who we belong to. Um, There is a show that I like to watch called Madam Secretary, and in one of the episodes, the ambassador, um, I should remember the name of the country and I don't, but the ambassador of that country over-identifies with the people of that country, so much so that he forgets 
his responsibility as an ambassador of the United States. He begins to take on their practices, their dress, their dietary habits, so much so that he is no longer recognizable as a U.S. citizen, as a representative of our country. That can happen to us. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We are living here in the world, but we belong to the kingdom of God. If we love the world, we over-identify with it, and we will lose any way of looking like the kingdom of God. So we have to be very careful. We have to love God more than we love the world. We talk also about common sins. The desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes are about satisfying our desire for pleasure, both real pleasure and imagined pleasure. The third one here is the quest for glory, and we're told to avoid that. In verses 18 through 28, um, the word children used here is a new word here in this letter. It's the Greek word padia, or the actual word is um, padawan, um, which comes from the word padia. So it's a form of that. This usually refers to small children between the ages of two and ten. Technion usually referred to a child between the ages of 10 and 17 when it wasn't being used by a teacher as an affectionate term for their disciples. When it was used of actual children between 10 and 17, the word here in verse 18 is for younger children. So he's getting down a little further on their level, speaking a little more to their immaturity. He talks about the last hour or last days. This is the time between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. He's come the first time, but he's having, he will come back again. He also talks about Antichrist. This one sometimes gets hard for us. Um, There is the capital A Antichrist, a particular person that John the Revelator speaks of, but there are many Antichrists which is anyone who opposes the work of Christ and the person of Jesus Christ. Wesley said it this way, that it was all false teachers and enemies of the truth. You can also take a look at 1 John 2.18, which is here in verse 22, uh, 1 John 4.3, 2 John verse 7, 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 through 12, and Revelation 13 for more on Antichrist and Antichrists. Um, The spirit of opposition to Jesus Christ is already in the world here before this first generation has passed, and it's present in those who oppose the truth about who Jesus was and is and what Jesus did. John talks about some who have left the movement. They've gone out from us. They were never really a part of us. And John says that they were never truly a part. There are some who are attracted to this movement, interested, but never truly become converted. There are some who come for other reasons, who have other motivations or agendas for participating in the in the church. This has been the great debate over time as to, are you once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation? For those who believe in once saved, always saved, which is called the perseverance of the saints, they say, 
in order to have any assurance that you belong to Christ, to know it is is real, it cannot be lost. It must be true and unchangeable. John Wesley came along, though, and he saw people who, who came to Christ were on fire for God, who lived faithfully. But at some point, because of something, they fall away. They return to their old life. Did that mean that they were never part of them, or did they change their mind and walk away? Scripture has verses that can support either position. But John said, how can we trust a profession when people make it if they can fall, if they can't fall away? How do we know that they ever belong to Christ? How long do they have to sustain it before we know it's real? So it's simply which one gives us better security? I'm of the camp that believes you retain your free will. Um, That's why I'm a Methodist. Okay. So John goes on and he says, but you all know all, you know all of this already. He says, Um, some are leaving who have been drawn away by false teachers, by other doctrines. Um, One is referenced here in verse 22. Um, One of those false doctrines or teachings If you deny either Jesus' divinity or Jesus' humanity, you are striking at the very root of the Christian faith. And the solution or the antidote for heresy is to return to the beginning, to the things you were taught originally. It's not true because it's old. It's true because you've drifted from what you originally taught. Return to sound doctrine. You were taught sound doctrine in the beginning. Go back to that. And he says, um, you know all things. Now, this is not a reference to omniscience. Um, We as disciples are not all knowing. He's talking here about the truth. You already know the truth. You know all the truth about salvation and Jesus Christ. Um, These people who come along, say other things, stir up other things, um, Don't go down that road. You already know all that you need to know. In verse 28, um, verse 28 may be the end of this section. It may be the beginning of the next section. Uh, Scholars are debated over that. There's another reference to his coming right here. And that is the Greek word perusia, which we use to refer to the coming of Jesus, and it's the only occurrence of the word parousia in any of John's writings, including the gospel, these three letters, or the revelation. I'm going to stop here. I'll pick up with chapter three in the next podcast.